As I was thinking about this morning's topic, and music is actually relevant to our topic here this morning, I was thinking about one of the things that I didn't really understand growing up. It kind of surprised me how my father had this tendency to get stuck in a musical era. Do you guys have that issue yourselves, where you get stuck with a, a certain era of music that you're just kind of locked there? I remember growing up, and a time would pass, and it was always Elvis or the Beach Boys, like that era of music, like the radio would always find its way climbing up in volume. It's a little singing along, a little, little, little knee tapping. Like there, there's this tendency, if we're not careful, to get stuck in a musical era. So the question is, which one is it for you? Which era of music? As I was thinking about that this week, I think the era that I'm maybe stuck in, if I'm able to admit that, a little bit stuck in the early 90s, a little stuck in the early 90s, if I'm honest with myself, the, the era of mullets and, uh, and good music. Um, I've noticed when on the radio, well, I've become my dad stuck in the era. When the, on the radio, there's a uh, hair band ballad from the 90s that comes on. I'll be there for you. And, uh, you know, like, I, I can't help not, not singing along. There's something that draws me to that, that music. Do you like that, Adrian? And uh, I should stick to preaching, not singing. Um, but you get stuck in, in an era. And one of the songs from the era that I got stuck in is that it's still kind of, it's one of those songs that the lyrics kind of play through your head. They kind of sneak in every once in a while. Maybe you remember this song. It was written by, or performed by Joan Osborne in the mid-'90s. It was called One of Us. Do you remember the song? What if God were one of us, a stranger on a bus trying to make his, I'm not singing, notice, uh, trying to make his way home, and he goes on to explore in that song that, that question. And I remember then and now thinking to myself, thinking like, how did you miss it? Like, how, how did you miss the reality, that, that question that she's asking? What if, there, there, there's no what if God was one of us. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a, I'm sorry, John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The good news that we celebrate is at Christmas, especially, is that he was one of us. He came down and was amongst us, lived amongst us, went through the full gamut of human experiences. Last week, I talked about God being with us. This week, the emphasis is a little bit more on God being one of us. The fact that he went through every experience that we have. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He went through all of it. Yesterday morning, I can't say that it's all the time that we do this, but yesterday uh, morning, the, the, we had a little devotional time with our kids. We had usually on Saturday start with some Saturday morning pancakes, and uh, we didn't yesterday, but we did start with a devotion time. And I remember so, just yesterday going through this verse with the kids, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, and trying to explain that. I don't know if you guys, in your attempts to do a, a family devotion, it's like, herding cats, uh, but trying to get them to sit and focus and trying to explain to my youngest little Sienna, who was up here a little earlier, what does sympathize mean? And just interesting, she was kind of perplexed, not sure exactly.
exactly what that meant, but explaining to her the idea that he's someone that can relate with us. Someone that he's empathetic, I didn't use the word empathetic, but he fully understands your situation because he's been there. How often do you have somebody that's trying to show you empathy and you're like, yeah, you just don't get it. You haven't been what I've been through. You haven't experienced what I've experienced. Well, the truth is, with God, and that's part of him being with us and being one of us, was the fact that he can empathize. He's a personal God. He's one that can relate to every experience we've been through, whether it's an exact or something similar. This morning, we're gonna unpack this mystery of what it looks like for God to be not just with us, but actually one of us. Let me pray before we dive further in. Dear God, thank you this morning for already the opportunity to sing of this divine mystery, how that works and celebrating that in song. God, I pray now that you'd reveal this to us, that you would open our eyes, that we'd have a clearer understanding of what that means and how it relates to our lives. How the fact that you're a personal God that wants a personal relationship with us really is amplified by the fact that you walked the roads that we've walked. We thank you for that reality. Pray now that you'd speak to us in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, what is the mystery? Like, what does that mean when you say God with us, what was one of us? Why is that such a big deal? But if you really let that sink in for a moment, allow that reality to sink into our core, thinking of the God of the universe coming down and being uh, actually becoming a man. What is that? And there's really, I, I thought it was interesting, I was reading from John Piper this week, and he pointed out there's really two massive mysteries in the Christmas story. The first one is the Trinity, the idea of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Try hard, hard to wrap your mind around that. But then also the second one being the unity of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? In theological terms, I'm going to add something to your vocabulary if you don't already, haven't already heard of this term. It's called hypostatic union. That's God becoming man. Hypostatic union. My challenge for you this week is to try to use that in a sentence and it not feel awkward uh, around Christmas. What are you celebrating this Christmas? The hypostatic union. Well, I don't know if that will work, but the idea of a, a hypostatic union by definition it basically is broken into three parts. That is three principles that relate to God becoming man. The first one is this. Christ has two distinct natures, humanity and deity. There's two very distinct parts of Christ. There is no mixture or intermingling of those two natures. And then the last one there you'll see on the screen, although there's two natures, it's still one person. Now, it's interesting because out of, in Christendom, amongst Christians around the entire world, whether an Orthodox Christian, a Catholic Christian, or a Protestant Christian, this is something that they actually agree on, uh, which is, which is kind of neat, but it doesn't change the fact that it's very difficult to understand, very difficult to understand how God can still be separate natures, but one person, what does that actually look like? And so this morning we're going to spend some time explaining how it worked, and here's the problem, is that I can't explain it. 
So I wanted to thank you guys for coming this morning and uh, wish you a Merry Christmas. No, uh, just kidding. I, I can't explain it. So we have to look to God's word for some clues kind of pointing towards what, what does that actually look like? I would propose that Philippians 2, 5 through 11 has a lot of hints as to what this actually looked like, how it actually worked. If you don't mind turning your Bibles there or your phones there or whatever works best for you, but it makes a lot more sense when you have this to read in front of you. Philippians 2, 5 is where we'll start. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, listen to this, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's break that down a little bit. It's a beautiful passage. In verse 6, we see the first aspect of how this actually worked. Is In verse 6, it says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. One important thing to realize is that when it says he was in the form of God, pointing to the fact that the manger scene wasn't the, was not the beginning of the existence of Jesus Christ. That was not the beginning. He existed prior to that. One theologian said he, remaining, he was remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Again, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In other words, he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He put them on the shelf, if you will, and said, you know what, I'm not going to live with all of those at my, exor- at, at, my, uh, at my command. He didn't continually think about it. He didn't continually exercise his immortality. He didn't continually exercise his omniscience. He didn't continually exercise his omnipresence. What does the text say? That he emptied himself of that. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that. There's no need to grasp at something when you already have it. There's no need to hold on to something if it's already who you are. He didn't lack anything to do with that. But he chose to empty himself. What did he empty himself of? Think about that for a second. What did he actually empty himself of when he came down? He emptied himself of the glory and honor that was due him. He, think about it. If you become from God of the universe, think of that when it says that he poured that out like and emptied himself, that's a pretty big drastic shift from the God of the universe to becoming a helpless baby in a manger. Like, think of that, that jump. That's a pretty broad jump. I would say that qualifies as emptying oneself. So the first thing we see in verse 6 is that he abandons his position. Verse 7, we see that it becomes like a man. It says, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The term likeness of men there literally means to become human. Fully God, fully human. 
Nobody knew by looking at Jesus that, oh, that, that's God in the flesh. That's, that's him. Like, there's nothing extraordinary about him. He went through all the same things that we went through, all the same, thing, same human experiences. I enjoyed this list that I read this past week by Mark Driscoll that summarized uh, kind of the different experiences that he had. Take a look at on the screen there. Different things that he experienced that we experienced. He was born of a woman. That's good. Had a normal body of flesh and bones. It wasn't some divine uh, body or, or whatnot. He grew up as a boy. He had a family. He obeyed his parents. Kids, listen to that. He obeyed his parents. He worshiped God, actually attended church and prayed. Worked as a carpenter. He got hungry and thirsty. He asked for information. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe asking for information. He was stressed. Anybody else uh, in that state right now? You're like, all right, he can relate with me. This next one, he was astonished. He went through a lot of emotions. He was happy. He told jokes. I can appreciate that. He had compassion. He had male and female friends that he loved and cared about. He gave encouraging compliments. He loved children. He celebrated holidays. He went to parties. And a lot of moms can appreciate this last one. He even loved his mother. So if you think about it, every aspect of what we experience, all the different facets, we see that in the life of Christ. So he was fully God, but also fully man. He became like man by emptying himself. Not only becoming like a man, we also see in verse 7 that he served man. Like he, he not just become, became any man. He's like, you know what, the very being, I thought it was interesting that it describes, the one describing him, says taking the form of a servant. That was part of it, every part of his being, the form. He's like, man, not just he did service, but took the form of a servant. He came not just as a man, but as a servant. As we've been going through the, the book of Mark this past fall, seeing just the account of his life, really just going from one person to serve to the next person to serve, going from one community serving that group, and, and, and really serving us so many times by healing people, by meeting their needs, unbelievable about the way that he spent his time on earth. It always fascinates me when it describes him going to a particular region saying, and they brought all of their sick to him, and he healed them all. When it uses terms like all, like what kind of magnitude of impact that must have been. Think about here in Rabbit Valley, if someone came and healed all of the sick, what does that actually look like? How do you wrap your mind around that? He came to serve, even to the extent of washing the feet of his disciples, the feet that he had actually created, he was washing. It's part of the fabric of who he was. He was a servant. This act of, of service played itself out. We see in the next section of verse 8 where he actually died for man. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Died on a shameful cross, and we talk a lot about that a ton in church world. And if we're not careful, I know we can allow that to kind of roll off of our tongue and just kind of become less and less of a, a big deal. Yeah, he died for us as if it wasn't a major happening. One story that I read some years back that stuck in my mind, some of you may have heard this before. I wanted to take a few minutes to read. It's called To Sacrifice a Son. 
it's Christmas, I figured we could read a story for a few minutes by Dennis Hensley. He tells the, the story, it says, it was, the, it was the 1920s in Oklahoma, and John Griffin was in his early 20s, newly married and full of optimism. He had also been blessed with a beautiful baby, but then in, the ni- in 1929 came the great stock market crash. With the economy shattered, he was thrilled to find a job operating one of the great railroad bridges that spanned the Mississippi. It was in 1937 that he brought his eight-year-old son Greg with him for the first time to see how the bridge worked. His son was wide-eyed as he saw Dad push levers that would raise this great bridge at his father's will. Surely his dad was one of the most important men in the world to control this magnificent bridge. When lunchtime came, he raised the bridge to let some ships pass through while he and his son went to a catwalk where they could better observe the passing ships. As they ate lunch, John told his son stories about the boats and their ports of call. Time passed. In the middle of a story, John was startled by the distant sound of a train whistle. He checked his watch and realized that it was 107. The Memphis Express train was due in just a few minutes. John didn't panic. He quickly jumped to his feet, told his son to stay where he was, and ran back to the the catwalk to the steel ladder that took him into the control house. He looked up the river and was relieved to see that no ships were coming. Then, according to safety custom, he looked underneath the control house to make sure there was nothing in the way. As he looked down, he saw something horrifying. Beneath the cogs of the two main gears was his beloved son, who had tried to follow his dad but had fallen off the catwalk. John realized immediately that if he lowered the bridge, his son would be crushed. But what could he do? Desperately, he tried to think of a solution. A plan emerged. He could climb down a rope from the catwalk and grab his son and then rush back and pull the control lever just in time for the oncoming train. He had no sooner finished thinking up this plan when he realized with absolute terror that he didn't have enough time to carry it out. What could he do? Time seemed to freeze. In anguish, he considered the ongoing train with his 400 passengers rushing closer towards the bridge and certain death if he did nothing. But this was his son, his only son, his pride and joy. In his his mind, he could see the tear-stained face of the boy's mother, but if he saved him, he'd be letting many others die. In a moment, he saw there was only one thing he could do. He knew he had to do it. So burying his face under his arm, he plunged down the lever The bridge had barely settled in place when out of the trees roared the Memphis Express with 400 passengers. It raced across the bridge, oblivious to the tragedy taking place right below them. John Griffiths lifted up his tear-stained face in time to see through the train windows a businessman reading the morning paper. There was a conductor looking at his pocket watch. There was ladies sipping coffee in the dining car and a little child pushing a long spoon of ice cream from a Sunday. None of these passengers looked out at John Griffith or at the massive gear room where John's dreams lay crushed and broken. Griffin hit the window with his hand. What's the matter with you people? Don't you realize I just sacrificed my son for you? No one answered. No one cared. No one even noticed his tears. The train was soon over the bridge and off into the distance. This is a faint illustration of what God the Father did in sacrificing his son Jesus for us 
so that we could not die, but have forgiveness and eternal life. I thought that was a sobering story, and I don't mean to be a, a story of a, a, a gloomy story on just before Christmas, but I think if we're not careful, we miss the magnitude of those simple words when it says that he came and offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. We can become numb to that, callous to that, the reminder of what actually happened, what was at stake. Him on a shameful cross, absorbing God's wrath on our behalf. It's a powerful reality of Christmas. But the the encouraging thing, I won't leave you in that spot. Verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, raised from the dead and exalted above everything. It's an awesome reality. Thinking of him not staying in the grave, not staying in that position, but going through that. And what does it say that is going to eventually happen? I love this reality. That eventually, everybody is going to confess him as Lord. Some of us think like, you know what, it's, it's a choice, and it, it, it is a choice, but ultimately, every single person on the earth, it says under the earth, you, you can't hide from this reality. We're going to either acknowledge it willingly or by the fact that when we're exposed to him, you can't not acknowledge it. And so here's the reality is this is the process. This was the explanation, if you will, of God becoming man. And until you see the full scope of the picture, it doesn't make sense. But think about it, how it happened. He said, you know what? I'm going to abandon my position. I'm going to come down as a lowly baby to a teenage girl. And then it making myself, putting all of my glory and all of the things that I'm able to do on the shelf to live a perfect life, walk amongst you, serve you. Like what more would we want from our God? What more could we ask for than that? What like unbelievable to think through that. The reality of God coming down and becoming one of us. Don't you often wonder how he navigated this, how he was able to do, to do this, live the perfect life? Too often, what made the, asking the question, what made this possible? Too often we skip from the birth to the death and forget that he lived 30 years before he started his, his public ministry. What were those experiences like for those 30 years here on this planet? Went through all the same things we did. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man, this, the fact that he increased in wisdom tells you that he limited himself because he didn't have all of it. He grew, he went through the same things all of us do through the, through the elementary years, through the, through the junior high experience, through the high school reality, on to young adulthood. Can you imagine all of those things he experienced? I don't know if you saw the, those series of E-Trade commercials with the little uh, talking baby like uh, where he's giving financial advice, kind of humorous, seeing this little uh, infant in his, in his crib giving financial advice. And, and I was thinking about that. I was like, how often that's how we picture baby Jesus showing up, you know, like showing up and giving direction in the temple, talking to, to Mary and Joseph, telling them what's up. And, uh, but, but that wasn't it at all. That wasn't it at all. He went through the full gamut, all of the experiences. When the, the song says, no crying he made, 
I'm like, uh-uh, that's not all the experiences. I know after having three kids, crying is part of the deal. Back then, it wasn't a sin, and today, it's up for debate. But, uh, but a, a lot of crying that you, that you go through as a parent, and what was it saying back then? Get mom, get mom. And what is it saying today? The same thing, get mom, because dad can't solve this. And so... Uh, and so uh, that the same experience, he went through all of it, every single piece of it. But the difference was he did it without sinning. That's fascinating. Hebrews 7.26 says that he was holy, innocent, and unstained, perfectly navigating through the. Don't you have to ask the question how he did that? If he was fully man, how did he navigate through all those seasons and period of, uh, periods of life without any, ever, ever messing up, ever, ever, ever wronging someone, ever, never speaking out of turn, never doing something out of selfish ambition? Like, never, like, how did he do that? How did he do that? I think it's interesting if you actually stop and think about it, the same way that he did it is the same resource that's available for those of us that have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He lived as we must live by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of times in the Christmas story, we forget that part of the story. You don't hear a lot of times when you talk about Christmas, talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. You hear about the Father, you hear about the, obviously the Son, but where was the Holy Spirit in all of us? Confession here, isn't that true? Don't we typically kind of miss the Holy Spirit's part in all of this? His, his, his role in playing that out as if he was kind of sitting on the, the corner on the sidelines waiting for the, uh, for the book of Acts to start? Like he's like, all right, then I'm going to show up. Once Jesus goes, then I'm going to actually show up on the scene. But that's not what happened. In fact, if you actually start to unpack the Christmas story, the Holy Spirit's fingerprints are all over. Think about it for a second. In chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, we read that the, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The name Christ that was given to him, the title that was given him, means itself anointed by the Spirit. Elizabeth, Jesus' aunt, when, when, when she connects with Mary to talk about it, what does it say about his aunt? She was filled with the Holy Spirit. Or Mary, what she was told when, when the angel announced that the baby was coming, she was told that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Then you think about it. Who can tell me who dedicated Jesus in the temple when he was born? Who, what, Simeon. Simeon. When si Simeon in Luke 2.25, it says that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Simeon acted, it says, in the spirit when he prophesied about Jesus' ministry to the Jews in the, and the Gentiles in Luke 2.27. Then think about the, the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3.16. What does it say happened? The, what came down like a dove on Jesus and rested on him? The Holy Spirit. In Matthew 4.10, he's led into the, the wilderness for a season of temptation by the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, 1 through 2, it says that he was full of the Spirit and was led by the Spirit. The beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, 14, I know there's a lot of passages, I'm trying to make a point here. It says in, that he did that in the power of the Holy Spirit. All of these things with the same resource that we're entrusted to still to this day. 
When it says that, that, he, that, he was, that he was following the will of the Father, the voice of the Father guiding and directing him would have been the Holy Spirit, the source of the power. It says in the power of the Holy Spirit, he did these things. So he navigated through all of these seasons of life perfectly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, what did we say that he did earlier? Because he shed himself, as a, he made himself a man with the same resources that we have at our disposal. It's a crazy reality to allow to sink in that he allowed himself to be guided perfectly by the voice of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45 describes Jesus Christ as the first Adam, where he had free will. He didn't have the sin nature. Now, there, there is a difference there. We learned that earlier on. He didn't have the sin nature, but he still had the free will to choose, just like we have choice, just like we have free will, to choose obedience or to go your own way. He did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. I was explaining in that little mini devotional yesterday morning, trying to explain what that looks like to my kids. Well, what does it actually look like to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in our life? Now, the first thing that came to my mind, and it, it won't shock you if you've been around here, was a, a car example. Uh, the, the, the idea that came to mind was a, was a, a brake and an accelerator, a gas, thinking through that of, of what the role of the Holy Spirit plays in our life. I was telling them, I was explaining to them, a lot of times the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we're trying to listen is the break that's saying, whoa, stop what you're doing, stop. Can, can we all reflect back on times where the, the Spirit's telling you, you can't do that. You can't respond to that email that way. You can't, you, you can't, uh, you can't treat your spouse that way. You can't act that way. You're, all of those things, oh, you can't do that. You can't go back to that way of sin. You're, you're called to live differently. That, that break that he hits, that he pushes down in the back of our mind, is the part, a huge part of him speaking to us. When I was sharing with the kids, it, it wasn't hard for them to point, I had them each point out an example of one that would happen. I mean, they were each ready to rattle on the things where the Spirit told them to do something. It's up for debate whether they listened or not. But, uh, but the, 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 that was a huge part of it. It's still a huge part of it in our life, the break. Then the, not just that, he's not just a God that's trying to keep us from doing things. He's also a God that's saying, listen, I'm keeping you from doing those things because I know what's best for you over here. So the accelerator is also a huge part of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Think of how many times, just reflect back on your own life, how many times there's been that, that nudge, or sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's like this booming voice, but that, that nudge that says, hey, you need to do this. You need to make that relationship right. You need to help serve this person that's struggling. You need to write that check. You need, you need to forgive this person. You need to think about all of the nudges of things to do that he's done in your life. All of those are roles of the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus was perfectly in tune with the, nud, with the breaks, with the, with the nudges. He had the same resources that we have today. Like he still made the choice to live by the direction of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what, when I think through a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, what that looks like, it's only amplified by this simple reality that he didn't just come down and was with us, he was actually one of us, allowed himself to be 
emptied out all the way down to the form of a baby so that he could go through the same experiences with the same resource. And the one resource that I would propose is the most critical resource in the life of the believer is the Holy Spirit. He lived and acted. That's how he discerned the Father's will in his life. I want to pray for that for us this Christmas and going into this season is that even thinking about the week ahead that there might be nudges that we actually respond to. There might be accelerator, there might be the accelerator roll, there might be the brake roll and that we get, and the neat thing about the way that it works is the more you listen, the better you get at this. The more you start responding to nudges, you're like, all right. The more you respond to the break, all right, I'm getting better at hearing his voice. I'm getting better at listening to him, and God will grow you, and it's so fun to see when that starts happening, how he starts shaping you, because he's concerned with the, not just what you do, but who you're becoming. That's an amazing thing. That's what's worthy of celebrating and singing about this Christmas, amen? Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you so much. For this reality, the reality that you came to live amongst us and to be one of us. Just an average Joe in the sense of taking on the human form, but still God in the flesh. It's something that we can't fully grasp, but it's something that you effectively and perfectly pulled off. We celebrate that this Christmas, God. We praise you for not leaving us here floundering, but giving us a direction and continuing to give us direction through the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray that we'd make choices even this week to listen to nudges, to to hit the brakes where we need to, to accelerate where we need to, God. Praise you and thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Let me have you guys just have a seat for just a minute. Um, Don't you love Christmas time? It's just wonderful. One of the things that I was thinking, um, you know, just approaching Christmas, it's, it's amazing how kind of our whole culture um, while it's still caught up in, you know, shopping malls and that kind of thing, there's something about Christmas where people just seem more joyful. You know, they seem more, more loving. They're definitely more generous. Um, maybe not more peaceful, you know, the, the shopping thing kind of, kind of throws a monkey wrench in that. But, but it's a season of generosity for everybody, and it's kind of contagious. Um, we have a tradition at ABF where we, um, rather than like lavish a bunch of individual Starbucks cards on all of the, um, on all of the staff. We just allow you to, uh, to give uh, financial gifts, and then, and then we pass those out uh, to them. And um, so that's what we're going to do this morning, um, as has been our history. Uh, you guys have been just incredibly generous uh, to our whole staff um, this year in their Christmas gifts, and uh, really appreciate that. So I'm going to ask all the ministry uh, leaders to come forward, Scott. Chad, is Adrian uh, with the, oh, there you are, Adrian's here. John um, grabbed his gift and he ran at, at the end of the first service, so, um, so John's not here. There are a couple of others that are, uh, that are out of town being Christmas, and we'll make sure that they, uh, that they get their cards. But um, all of our ministry leaders, and I can just attest to this, spending a lot of time with, um, with all of them, they are so committed to, to this church and committed to you guys individually. Um, you have no idea the, the hours that they spend praying for you, going through the, the care journals and just, just knowing what your needs are and praying for those needs and bringing those before the Lord. And uh, these people are just 
just committed, like I say, to this church and to the people and the family of this church and really just, just make this happen. And so it's a joy to be able to, um, to just recognize them and to give them a gift, a generous gift from our congregation. So from the ABF family, um, Chad, you get to keep this one this time. <laughs> Scott, there's not a check in it. But. And, and Adrian, um, in addition, uh, Chris and Josh are both out of town. Uh, they lead our, our youth ministries, junior high and high school, and um, just countless hours, not just the hours they get paid for, but volunteering and being here throughout the week. Uh, Carolyn is part of our, um, our gift this year, too, because she was helping uh, run the, the kids' program for the good part of the year, and so we wanted to bless her with a, uh, with a gift as well. And I mentioned John, who, who ran off planning the, uh, the Mexico trip, I think, today. Um, but... Uh, Anyway, just want to thank you guys for all the time that you get paid for and volunteer for and, and just all the time that you spend uh, making ABF what it is. And thank you so much. Um, you know, just give them a hand. And... <clears throat> all right, let me just, let me just pray for us um, as we go. Lord, oh. Just, uh, just to think of you coming into this world as a baby, but growing to be a man and to, um, to sacrifice and to give your life as a ransom for us that we might come into a relationship with you. We thank you for this ministry team, Lord, and what they do to, um, to bring us closer to you, what Chad does every week to bring us into the throne room of your grace and Scott and John teaching and, and Adrian with the, with the kids and Josh and Chris and Lord, everything that, that these, these folks do to serve you and to love on us. And we thank you for their ministry and we thank you for what they do. We pray as we go forward, Lord, that this would be a sweet time uh, preparing for Christmas in just a couple of days. And uh, Lord, we're just, we're grateful. Help us to have hearts that are peaceful joyful, gracious, and generous this Christmas time. And we just lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to remind you a couple of, couple of days from now, Christmas Eve service. So be here four o'clock or six o'clock. It's a blessing and uh, be here for it. God bless you. Have a great Christmas.